This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Einstein at GoGo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We love those doctors. In the studio with me today, I'm joined with Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I'm, I'm getting there. Yep. I, I'm pretty well. <laughs> I'm still, you know, gradually trying to, yeah. yeah, exactly, gradually shaking this horrible cold. <laughs> yeah, they're not good. There's a few of them going around. And Dr. Ray, how are you? Good morning, Dr. Shea. I'm, I'm, I'm quite well. I'm yeah. glad to be back. I missed a couple of weeks. You couple did? Couple months. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You were OS? Yeah. OS back, OS back, OS back. So love, just getting over the jet lag. Oh, you've got to love those long flights. And we've got Luvian doing our Twitter feed. Uh, she's a bit angry this morning, folks, but uh, she'll be okay. She should be. So if you get any uh, rough language, uh, just tweet back to me and I'll um, take care of it. But I think, uh, yeah, she's having some issues. Anyway, <laughs> let's get into some science. We do have a big show for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, Salmonella and uh, the micro- Microbiological Diagnostic Unit with uh, Ben Howden a bit later. And uh, because Dr. Gianni's in and she has such a love for Pluto, we've got Ellen Duffy in here um, shortly to <laughs> talk about all things Pluto and, and uh, astrophysics. Uh, Ellen's from Swinburne University and has been on the show before. But let's start off with some news. Gianni, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, a paleobiologist walks into a museum. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. was actually a very, a very important visit, okay, actually. Okay. So, so the paleobiologist was uh, David Martel from the University of Portsmouth, and he was taking a, a group of his students through uh, Bürgermeister Müller Museum in uh, Solnhofen in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, showing them the fossil collection and checks out this one fossil and he thinks, oh my God, what is that? labelled unknown fossil. Um, it turns out to be quite an important fossil, potentially. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, it's about 15 centimetres long, and it's a snake, only it's a snake with four legs. No way. So, um... You're right Sorry, there. I'm just yeah, about something up. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> we, we, actually, we actually see this a lot, though, don't we, where we see people going through old museum collections and finding things that have been misclassified or not classified at all. Like, it's not uncommon. No, that's right. Yeah. So, so this one was particularly important because there've been fossils previously found of of snakes with two legs, with hind legs, um, and even in some uh, snakes that are alive today, like the um, uh, the boas and the pythons, they have little um, hind, like pelvic spurs, so like remnants okay. of, yeah. of hind legs. But uh, they've not found a fossil of a snake with four legs before. So it's potentially, you know, one of these important fossils that shows a transition point in evolution. And uh, to lizards from from a lizard-like ancestor mm. into snakes. Mm. And uh, by looking at this uh, this fossil, they've been able to show that more than likely uh, snakes evolved from a burrowing lizard rather than from a marine creature which mm-hmm. so those were sort of two competing hypotheses uh, but the question is 
is it actually a snake? If it's got and, four legs. <laughs> well, there are other features that... Uh, so David Martel is very firmly of the belief that, yes, this represents um, an ancestor of snakes. It should be classified as a snake because it has other features. It's got rearward-facing um, teeth and it's got right. uh, scales on its... Um, a single row of belly scales, and it's actually got a very short tail. It might seem funny to think of a snake as having a tail, mm, but it, mm. but actually it, lizards have very long tails, snakes have very short tails. Um, but there are other people who would say, yeah, I'm not really, not really convinced that it is necessarily a snake. Um, so, yeah, potentially a very important... Uh, finding well an, an important finding to add to uh, what we know about the evolution of snakes but we can't forget that you know the evolution of um, limblessness has evolved many times in the snakes and lizards we've got you know <laughs> legless lizards of course um, so where where this fossil fits I guess is you know still to be determined but um but yeah a, an interesting find and interesting also like you say because someone walked into a museum and lo and behold yeah. there it was they weren't out in the field digging away they were they yeah. were looking at it came from Brazil originally I should say um but yeah so interesting mm. find it, it is um I do find it funny it's one of those scenarios where one fossil doesn't change our our worth of knowledge you know that's that's what makes it hard is they've got one example of this which as we know you know of other species you can get some real odd deformities and various things happening so you know uh, I suppose the jury will be out for a while until yeah, well, they I, I see think or, or is there enough detail in there to, to make those I'm not sure that there's enough detail but I think the really interesting thing with all of this paleobiology is how you know what we find in the fossil record can be um you know fitted into what we now know with genetic analyses mm. being possible we can sort of tease out some of the relationships between extant animals with the genetics yep. and that can you know give us a lot of clues about how we should be looking at the fossils and the features in the fossils so yeah it's it's an it's an interesting story it is indeed dr ray dr shane um i uh, i have um well, it's a story about the handedness of animals. Uh, and it handedness. Handedness. So we often decide, describe, feel that the, the idea that we're left or right-handed is one of the things really unique to humans. Okay. Uh, or, or I didn't com- know that, but, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll accept that. Um, mm-hmm. There is some evidence that people have studied primates and seen, like, gorillas exhibit some, some handedness, or biologically it's called lateralization. Uh, and, and anyway, so people have looked at, at primates and looked at mammals. And there's one group that's been doing some ongoing research, as I just found out. You can read about their early work on Dr. Diani's blog from last year. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, uh, a group out of St. Petersburg and also ANU looking at marsupials. And the upshot of it is red kangaroos and Easter gray kangaroos are left-handed. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> Got to watch that left hook. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you had to bring the boxing kangaroo into it. Yeah. And, <laughs> it was uh, an obvious one, wasn't it? <laughs> what was interesting here was... Southpaw. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> waiting. Come on, come on. That's gold. That was quick. Yep. Does yep. that make Sorry. Jake, in the new coming movie, does that make Jake Gyllenhaal kangaroo? <laughs> um, uh, Indeed. And, and, anyway, it, what, they, what was interesting about the study is they did much larger marsupials, and they did four or five of them, and what they showed was lateral was not dependent on gender. Hmm. It was not dependent on species grouping. Uh, and more interestingly, the thing that it was dependent on is whether or not they were mostly bipedal or not. So the ones that stood up were the ones that exhibited lateralization. 
Uh, and that was consistent across these four or five animals that I did in this study and their previous study. So that you know, the, the idea they posited last time, and they've certainly pushed this time, is that a handedness in people is somehow related to us being bipedal. Yeah, because my dog, I know I've got a couple of Siberian Huskies, and when my male one jumps up and tries to whack me in the undesirables, <laughs> it's a too poor adventure. <laughs> he can actually get both. Ambidextrous. Oh, yeah, yeah. He yeah. can get me in both spots at the same time. And I've always wondered, you know, like he doesn't just go for one paw and go nuts, but but he's not a standing up individually. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was really neat that it was across all their behaviors. I'd see that consistency. Mm. The, on the quadrupeds that they looked at, one of the wallabies, it was a little different. Sometimes it showed handedness on one thing for eating, but another hand for grooming. Okay. Uh, and the thing that they didn't tackle in all of it, I still wanted to know, was why was it left hand? I mean, they said, oh, it must be ecology and a preference for hands for motor dexterity and things, but... Why was it the left hand? I mean, yeah. So I mean, humans obviously there's the dominance of right-handed yeah. handedness. So I think um, I think in uh, their previous work they said something about you know the way our brain specializes tasks could could have something yeah. to do with it. So you know if mm, um, you're looking up your own blog, <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember these things. No, no, you're right. It was interesting. In, in this paper, they actually pointed out that. The ways mammals specialize brains, actually, brains specialize in mammals is actually a little different marsupials. So there's kind of this lack of understanding of how related that handedness is and hmm. how does that work in the brain. So it, it could be, gosh, maybe marsupials just are a little more what right-brained if it's left-handed. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. So, uh, Super interesting stuff. Well, uh, watch out for those kangaroos, folks. They're all left-handed. Keep that in mind if you're in trouble. <laughs> could be could be helpful. Well, Dr. Jen and uh, her partner, Ewan, are up in the Northern Territory, or Queensland at the moment. Big uh, count, count. Counting roos. Um, try and find me a right-handed one, Dr. Jen, if you're listening. <laughs> we'll give you some extra bucks. Uh, they got all the money they needed for that, which was great. And a big thank you to anyone who helped with that crowdfunding support because um, it's the sort of project that won't be funded any other way. And I know that uh, if you saw the pictures on Facebook of the amount of food they packed into the back of that truck <laughs> and their kids, uh, they're in for quite a fun, potentially challenging time. So, yeah. Anyway. uh just in the root count and then suddenly they have to scratch one number off the roots because one of the kids no no kids you know they got hungry yeah yeah <laughs> uh, indeed um now russian billionaire yuri milner uh, did you see this this week? It was very interesting. He has poured $1 million into the Wait. SETI program. Excuse me, Dr. Evil. I think you mean $100 million. <laughs> Sorry, $100 million. You're, right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's still a small figure. Anyway, uh, $100 million. Um, uh, Yuri Milner, who's um, very rich Russian, has poured this money into NASA's SETI program. Now, to put this in context, if you take the uh, amount of money that's gone into SETI between the sort of start of it in the 70s through to the 1990s, um, that adds up to about $110 million. So we're taking, you know, sort of 20 to 30 years' worth of budget and pouring it all in in one, one go. Although spending it at a time value. Yeah, 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 the time yeah. value of money, yeah. there's been more money spent than what he's spending now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And so basically um, the idea here, I mean, you've got to think of what SETI's trying to do and why.
why you know people might think, well, it hasn't achieved anything, and surely I those screensavers got <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> well, it, it, it was the initiation of uh, you know crowd crowd science in that sense. It was the first thing where they really put out to the masses software that allowed people to you know um, deconvolve some of the data and actually send that data back into a scientific program, which is you know these days it's com- common for these things to be going on. Um, but back when when it started, it was a really big uh, new thing that people um, got involved with and that was done all over the world. But one of the reasons why SETI has so much trouble, and it's not necessarily because there's no life out in the universe, but it's because if you think about what we do and our our life here and the information we sort of spit out of our planet towards the universe in terms of radio and so forth, it's actually pretty limited. So you think, you know, at the moment, hopefully, uh, if you're hearing me, you're listening to 102.7, this particular frequency. Um, your television channels are at another particular frequency, and we actually use up a very, very small number of these frequencies. So if you were listening from afar, you would want to be tuned in to one of those specific frequencies um, in order to hear any sort of information coming from us. Now, in addition to that, of course, you'd have to be tuning in at a very specific time in history. So as more and more of our um, communications network and that turns to fibre optics and so forth and goes underground, less and less of our information is being spurted out into space. So even television these days, sooner or later, will all be transmitted through fibre optic cables and less and less of it will be transmitted through the airways. So there's a sort of short period of time between, you know, around the 50s to, you know, maybe a bit earlier of radio transmissions um, to probably, what, within 20 years? Where so you've got 100 years, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there's that in, in the entire evolution of our species and our... Speck and, of and time. Our, you've got this speck of time and, and little speck of, of frequencies we use and where one one star amongst you know billions and billions of stars hundreds of billions of stars in our one galaxy and so you've got to look at the right place at the right time and and so SETI's been able to look at a very small patch of sky and a very limited range of frequencies and you know so even even if you got lucky you know you'd be I'd have to say extremely lucky to to locate a signal from elsewhere at the right time at the right frequency all of these things so that makes it very difficult um the the idea behind putting all this money in at this point in time is to you know radically increase the amount of the sky you look at at a, at a given time and also the range of frequencies that you're actually looking um, looking through and so what this money will be spent on is is partly doing what um, hasn't been the norm for a long time and that is buying significant amount of radio astronomy time off facilities for the SETI program so there's always been this this scenario where SETI kind of jumped on the back of of other big projects and programs whereas now they'll actually almost be the other way around in some cases where so much um, telescope time will be purchased with this money that they'll they'll be dominant in terms of what they're doing dr shana when i read this article uh, i had something in it and i was very torn even to ask the question but because i saw that i think they said a quarter or a half of park's time Mm. would be spent on yeah yeah which is fantastic but then i thought about Radio telescopes are actually, to researchers, a limited resource, mm. both in their ability to buy time, but also there's a lot more things people would like to do than what they can. And a lot of times that's merit-reviewed, you know, likelihood of success yep. versus when we give it to you. How does this fit into that paradigm? 
Yeah, look, I think I think it's a, it's a very interesting question, actually, because one of the things that most of these facilities do all over the world is struggle for funding. And so the idea of... This is, a, in a sense, a bit like getting a good commercial agreement going with an external player. So there'll be more money coming into some of these facilities to buy out some of that time, and that money will be spent on other things that will, will aid to the research, I'm sure. And whether that's upgrades for the facilities or whatever else, it won't be completely lost. Um, you, you also have a scenario where... SETI's not just about looking for, you know, it doesn't just look for signals. I mean, it, it's doing science as well the whole way through. And I like that distinction. <laughs> well, you know, other science, other science. But, it, but this is, okay, I mean, this is an important point. And, and, and you, you mock and you laugh, Dr. Diaby. But, well, I but do. It, because but you the think of um, the challenge in getting researchers to actually be part of this program. I mean, it's something of a career-limiting decision to go into SETI, in a sense. And not many, in fact, most SETI scientists are quite senior. There's not many new graduate researchers going through into SETI because of this perceived, you know, what what is it exactly? I mean, what's the chance of being successful? Pretty well, low. They are basically sampling a huge data set yeah. and that's yeah. open access that yeah. could be mined for other things. I don't know if it, it might be oh. limited in, in, in terms of what radio frequencies, but still, that's a lot of data. Yeah, I mean, they're still listening to, to what's coming in from those particular stars that they're examining. So, and... One of the things you've got to remember, and this is this is the same argument that came with the Apollo program and all other aspects of space exploration, is in doing this better, you develop new technologies that are used in other areas. So there's always flow-on effects. But look, it's it's interesting to have such a you know a, well, in a sense, if you think about it as as a species, the idea that we would spend 100 million on seeing whether or not we're alone in the universe is kind of is that all? <laughs> you know, I mean, political campaigns spend more than that on advertising. It's not a lot of money in that sense, but in terms of what SETI's had to play with over the years, it's you know, it's a big injection of funds. So it's, it's exciting from that perspective. I'm not holding my breath on an outcome, but the good thing is, uh, one of the things I like about, um, there's many things I like about the Russian billionaire, Yuri Milner, if you're listening, Yuri, <laughs> your, your ability to give me money, um, is that he's basically said, you know, this is, a, this is a run for about 10 years, and if it's not successful, we'll go for another 10. So he's pretty much left the door open for future funding for SETI, which is really great because SETI has struggled for many years to have ongoing funding, which is one of the reasons why, you know, it's very hard to get young researchers involved in the program. So I think that, that gives it some longevity, which is, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Hollywood will be happy. Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, this is one of the brainchilds of Carl Sagan and others, you know, very famous scientists from the past. So, you know, it's something that uh, I think, you know, we have to have a look, right? It's exciting. Yeah, yeah, whatever the chances, right? <laughs> well, you know, the old uh, Drake equation, which is, you know, one of the things that they, those, those guys dreamt up back then, which was determining what the probability of finding number you know intelligent life lands in 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 the milky way and you know it was it was something like 10,000 or something they expected so it wasn't a you know and there's a lot of assumptions in that equation but it wasn't an insignificant number so and mm. it's look it's really it's out there science it is there's no doubt about that so anyway i can feel dr diani looking at me like what the <laughs> hell wait don't didn't we find 2000 <laughs> exoplanets like they they might have ideas on where they should aim too well yeah i mean the um I think the the reality is they're going to be a certain age, they've got to be a certain size, well, and a certain yeah. range. I think you know. for me, you summed it up before, we've got 100 years of, of this frequency going out and the likelihood that we're going to overlap with another country, oh, wait, sorry, another planet in those same 100-year span, give or take, that's 
Yep. Infinitesimally small, I'd imagine. Yeah, you know the best part about that, though? The universe is infinite, in, infinitely large, so when yes, you add those two true. statistics yeah. together, you say, yep, should happen by next week. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, folks. We'll be back in a moment to talk about uh, salmonella just in time for lunch. Um, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday. We've got quite a bit of science coming your way. 3 Welcome back. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. We are joined in the studio now by Professor Ben Howden from the University of Melbourne at Doherty Institute. Welcome, Ben. How are you going? Uh, I'm great, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Now, you are the Director of the micro- Microbiological Diagnostic Unit down there at the Doherty. Tell us a bit about what the function of that unit is. Yeah, so the unit's a public health laboratory that deals with uh, bacterial infections, and mm-hmm. so the, the role of a public health laboratory is to help the, the state government, the Department of Health and Human Services investigate and track uh, bacterial infections, you know, notifiable bacterial infections. So for you know things like Legionnaires' disease, foodborne disease, uh, vaccine-preventable invasive infections like meningococcus and pneumococcus. Yeah. Now I, I remember when the the Doherty Institute. For those of you who don't know, it's uh, that nice new shiny building on the corner of Grattan Street and Royal Parade. Um, when it was being built, I went on a tour, and there was this section of the building where they had these giant doors, like from some science fiction film. And um, they said, you know, this is where they'll be sealing in some nasties mm-hmm. is, is that sort of part of where you're involved or is that where they keep the uh, uh stuff yeah well there's two public health laboratories in the building so my one which is the mdu that you've mentioned and also mm-hmm. the victorian infectious D- disease reference laboratory vidral which uh, does a lot of the virology so that's things like ebola and high-risk agents like that so both of our laboratories have these high containment uh components to what they do and so you know for things like anthrax and other high-risk things we do that in our laboratory and so you've got to make sure it's uh certainly uh contained and not going to get out yeah yep is there some big explosive device if things get out of hand the whole building goes into a heap yeah for sure that's yeah. right yeah total implosion <laughs> <laughs> i like given my yeah. building next door to that one i'm a bit concerned that that's the case um now talk us through what happens when for example there is a there is an outbreak in a you know of a scenario like uh, in a restaurant or a, a prestigious hotel one of these things and and you hear about this i mean what what's the process there does someone bring in their steak and sort of dump it into your your foyer and say hey you know, I've got food poisoning. What's going on? How does yeah. that work? Uh, so we're closely linked to the Department of Health and Human Services. And so what happens is that for any uh, human samples where they've cultured an organism such as salmonella, they all get sent to us to characterise. And then if we think there's an outbreak at a particular location, but based on epidemiology, so, you know, cases mm-hmm. of these, you know, sort of things are investigated by the department. If they think they've all been to the same restaurant, they'll go to that restaurant or facility and collect samples of food or whatever they think may be contaminated and also send it to us. And then we try and put the two together by looking at the, the characteristics of the bacteria that we isolate. When you're talking about something like a, a salmonella outbreak, what like, like is it just the tip of the iceberg of? Uh, you know, the number of cases that actually get reported. Are there lots of people that just, you know, feel a bit unwell and stay home? Or is it, you know, everyone's sick enough that they go to the doctor and get cultured? And no, That's a great question. It's definitely the tip of the iceberg. So in Australia, there's, you know, up to 15,000 
confirmed cases of salmonellosis a year, but it's been estimated in the US that the, the real number for, you know, compared to those sort of cases might be 30 to 100 times higher. Oh, so wow. we're talking about you wow. know, huge numbers of potential... Unrec- and, and you know yourself, you know, if you've been out and you've got a sore tummy, a bit of diarrhoea, unless it's really bad, you're probably not going to go and get a, mm. a faecal sample done, you know, oh. taken and you know, get it confirmed. And so those cases all go unrecognised. Now you've answered a, a question that I think I was about to ask, but I'm very interested in the process of what goes in in your lab. So is this literally hospitals grabbing faecal samples if they suspect sorry they're everyone eating lunch yep. but it is still only 11 30 um but so they're grabbing a faecal sample they're sending that to you guys and then what what do you do with it um, yep. at that point you have to i know there's some biological terms here that i probably don't know but i assume you have to sort of grow it up into a live uh, version of the virus that's correct um so uh, bacteria yeah bacteria, bacteria. <laughs> See? Yeah. there we go uh well there's three things we get one is that you know some laboratories out there will, will isolate the bacteria themselves so if a patient comes in with a diarrhea they they put that diarrhea on an agar plate and the plate has got certain things in it that help salmonella or shigella grow and so you can find the bacteria and if they isolate them they send them to us to characterize Mm -hmm. and then if the department of health has gone out and they know of cases who haven't been tested they might collect the sample and send the the raw sample which is the faeces to us which is always fun but we do the same thing as the other labs do and then and then the final thing is that you know the potential source of the food sample so you know that that Mm -hmm. will all get also get sent to us and we go through a similar process of trying to detect a a bacteria which can be quite hard in a large food sample Mm -hmm. um i actually wanted to to get at a question about the way you guys talk about it because you know how to do it and you're good at it it's kind of matter of course but it's pretty impressive human waste is a smorgasbord of bacteria and finding the ones you want versus the other things that are there just because we're people that's pretty impressive in itself yeah, certainly. There's been many years of you know classic microbiology done to try and understand how to do those things, and you're exactly right. You know, the, a fecal sample is probably the most complex thing we see in the laboratory, really, and uh, it's very sometimes very hard to uncover these things. And we're moving more towards techniques where we're looking for the DNA, so molecular ways of doing these things. So you know, rather than culture-based methods, we're trying to grow the bacteria. You're looking for the DNA of the bacteria in the sample. Mm. So uh, that, that was one of the, the things I was going to ask you is, um, you know, we often see those pictures when you hear an Ebola story or something on the news and they show you a picture and I think most people could almost draw a bowl now, you know, they've seen the picture of it but is there is it a visual identification or is it based genetically now? How do you determine that it's salmonella? Uh, that's a good question. So we're still using old-fashioned methods in the lab so we grow it on a plate and then we do some, some tests to see what sugars it might use so, you know, um, mm-hmm. old-fashioned sort of microbiology methods but increasingly we're, we're moving towards molecular methods so by that I mean using genetic testing, PCR and now really moving towards whole genome sequencing which right. is where we you know, actually characterize the whole genome of the bacteria in a very short p- period of time and so that gives us you know the, the most highest resolution characterization of the strain that we can yeah. when you find that you have this positive result and and you know say a restaurant for example has an outbreak or causes an outbreak of this condition and, and salmonella is um, the culprit first of all what what causes that to occur i mean you know where's the salmonella coming in from and then how do you make sure that it's sort of ended and stopped yeah uh, so again we work closely with the department of health and human services here so they're responsible for interacting with the the, the facility mm-hmm. um and uh, in this in terms of source i guess it, increasingly we're recognizing that eggs are a very important source of salmonella in australia and, and in internationally there are other sources as well mm-hmm. uh, they can be on you know uh, pets you know reptiles and things that people have at home but most common source would be eggs and contamination of eggs and with you know increasing um 
in these sort of uh, shows that show people making their own food with raw eggs and you know a, t- a tendency for more of this to happen that's when there's a higher risk of, of catching salmonella and so it's things like mayonnaise aioli things like that where right. eggs that are contaminated with salmonella are used and then that can lead to to infection and so it's about the process of how you um, manage and you know use those eggs and use them in a safe way and so there's increasing um, you know activities from the Department of Health to try and improve that process really mm. now, now Ben you guys aren't just there as a, a lab for testing i mean you're doing new research in the lab as well give us an idea of what sort of new funky things are you working on at the moment i assume it's related to all of what we've been discussing so far yeah well there's definitely a revolution in public health microbiology happening now and that's i mentioned previously about this idea of whole genome sequencing so what we've done to date is you know used ways to try and characterize bacteria to say whether they're the same so if we've got a foodborne outbreak we want to know if all the people have the same you know sub subtype of bacteria and whether we find the same one in the food then we can put the whole story together but those older methods are not particularly accurate and so we're now moving to to whole genome sequencing where we can get the whole genetic uh, snapshot of the bacteria and use that to really track very effectively uh, where where these sort of bacteria are coming from and so a lot of our research is now about um, trying to to move this into public health microbiology in Australia it's happening overseas we recently had a a symposium at our institute at Doherty Institute last Monday in fact where we had representatives from the FDA in America and Public Health England in the UK and they've already moved to using this type of technology for real world public health microbiology and we're trying to do the same thing here. So does that mean that you, you foresee a day when you can basically chuck out the culture tubes and just go in with the PCR and to diagnose or do you think we'll always have you know the cultures as a as a backup as a backup yeah hopefully in the short term although there is a a tendency for for labs that are doing diagnostics now just to use pcr because it's quicker and more efficient but that means we don't get the the isolate or the bacterial isolate to, to characterize and so at the moment we want to keep going with the the ice, you know, the bacteria for the next few years, and that's certainly where we're going to be. But I think the longer term, we're going to be in a molecular diagnostic and characterization world where we may not be working with isolates so much. Mm. Now, presumably, with a lot of this work, you have to keep some of these forms of bacteria, you know, on hand in your lab. How do you? I've always been fascinated about how you sort of keep that going. I mean, Ray and I, we keep fish, marine fish. Yeah. We're very good at it, um, but it's an exhaustive process, very expensive. <laughs> how do you keep bacteria going? So you, you know, at any time of year you've constantly got a source of salmonella or the yep. many others that you work on yeah it's an interesting question so i mean you can plate them out which means you just take a subculture and put it onto a new plate and then put them in the incubator at 37 degrees which is the temperature mm-hmm. they love and they'll grow up in 24 hours and then they'll be there again but to keep them long term what we do is we freeze them down at minus 80 degrees and so we've got freezers you know with lots of different bacteria in them frozen at minus 80 and you, you, t- you take a little bit of that out and put it on a plate and put it at 37 and they'll often grow happily again so they're yeah. actually pretty easy to keep fantastic one final question for you, Ben, just for the, the folks at home. Uh, what's the average temperature of the human body? The average, well, 37. Isn't that nice? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Disturbing. Uh, Professor Ben Howden uh, from the University of Melbourne at the Doherty Institute, thanks so much for coming in and uh, keep up the good work there and uh, keep us safe, mate. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate it. You're listening to 3 Triple Arts, Einstein and Go-Go time, folks. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. We're going to be talking to Dr. Alan Duffy from Swinburne University about Pluto and all things space. So uh, stick around. Three Triple
Uh, you are listening to Triple R. We are joined in the studio now by Dr. Alan Duffy from Swinburne University. He's in the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing, which he tells me during the break. I didn't <laughs> didn't know that. Um, now we have Alan in for a very specific purpose, and that's to get Diani, Dr. Diani, excited about Pluto because as yet it hasn't quite taken. No, has it? not really. <laughs> no, it's just one of those many objects out there somewhere. It doesn't really have any bearing on my life. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Alan. I'll turn my harsh. I'll, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll turn her microphone off. It's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and of course, her, her glasses just fell because she doesn't have Velcro to hold them on. The table. <laughs> Since Velcro was, of course, invented by NASA. But, well, jeez, you know. oh, she's uh, yeah, but she's into plants and stuff. You know, you can't fault her for that. Um, we we love our Dr. Tiani. Mm-hmm. Now, Alan, we thought we might just chat to you a bit about you. You've been uh, running some events out at Swinburne, but pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed while I was um, at work watching some of the live stuff, you had a oh, whole yeah. group of people. Tell us a bit about what you did at Swinburne, because it sounds like the outreach there has been pretty spectacular around the Pluto mission. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there's a lot of people very excited about this, you know, event, and indeed astronomy in general. And yeah. we just want the public to get involved as much as possible. So we had uh, in our virtual theatre the uh, the live stream. Uh, running, we were alternating, you know, the sort of the more dull moments. And Yanni, there are some, you're right, but most of it's exceptionally exciting. Um, with actual talks from from our planet formation group, uh, from uh, you know people like myself who just get excited about these things. Yeah. And yeah, we had the general public packed out auditorium. Uh, yeah, and basically trying to make it a bit more. Uh, I guess educational, trying to slip in as many lessons as we can. Uh, I'm loath to say edutainment, because <laughs> a bit of me dies inside, but we were trying to be, trying to get them uh, as many facts and figures and, and, um, yeah, the theory behind how these planets form and dwarf planets, uh, as possible. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of the, the overall Pluto mission, I mean, from your perspective, what, what has been the big sort of the big bang of this, the, the, the most exciting part? I mean, I, I've got my version, which people hear every week, but, mm. um, you know, as a, as a practicing astrophysicist, I yep. mean, what's the, um, what's, what's the big news? For me, it was the fact that Pluto is, geologically speaking, uh, alive. It should be a frozen dead world. Mm. And instead you have mountains, which implies something's driving these up, right? Tectonic activity would, would do that here on Earth. Uh, where's that energy come from? Where's the heat for that mm. kind of activity? We have fresh surfaces, which, uh, at least for planets, they, they tend to get you know pockmarked by asteroids, meteorites, whatever. The moon, for example, is a complete mess. That implies that it's a very old surface. Pluto should be exactly the same, and yet it's in places, baby, pristine, smooth, pristine. Mm. Um, again, that implies it's a very new surface. So some kind of activity has resurfaced. Again, where is that coming from? Mm. So that, to me, was the biggest shock. Yeah, I, I know. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the case of the the Jovian moons around um, mm. Jupiter and and Saturn and so forth, there's so much interaction gravitationally between those massive planets and the moons that the moons are quite dynamic. But yep. but it's not it's not necessarily due to anything within the moons themselves, is it? I mean, it's that that interaction that's driving that. But Pluto doesn't have that. Yeah. Scenario, well, there, the energy in that case is uh, tidal heating, so that's mm. where the uh, the insides essentially are stretched and, and pulled by the the gravity of the other moons and Jupiter or Saturn, and that's how you get your energy, and that's how you can build up. You know, you get lava coming out on the surface, for yeah. example, or exploding uh, volcanoes into space. There's nothing equivalent to that. I mean, Pluto has uh, Charon, which is, you know, a reasonable size uh, relative. Indeed, it's more of a, a binary uh, 
planet system, but or dwarf planet. I hate having to say that every time. Um, we're, we're, we're with the planet version here on the show. Uh, yep. You know, to the five percent of the International Astronomical Union who demoted it, get stuffed. <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of that decision, but anyways. So we have, uh, but they're uh, tidally locked, and they uh, so you don't actually get any tidal heating. So again, every time you uh, you can think of a mechanism. Pluto is an exception, and it's just, I mean, that's awesome. That's why you explore, is to just see new things. And to see, um, gosh, even when it came up close, the thing is orange. I mean, what's Yeah, <laughs> what's that about? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just all this organic gunk is sitting on the surface, has stained it orange, and it should be snow white. You know, it's just a giant frozen ball of ice and, and methane ices. But there it is, orange. Mm. Even the, the, everything about that world is uh, bizarre, and again, this is why you explore. There's no substitute for getting up close and having a good look at something. Yeah. So as, as we sort of look through the um, the solar system, you know, I mean, I, I sort of categorise some of the planets. That, you know, Mercury, a little boring. Yeah, not not great. Uh, you know, hey, it has ice. Has on ice. It. it does have ice, which it is yeah, which water. is kind of cool. It's yeah. that close to the sun. You know, Venus is one I think where we really haven't scratched the surface, so to speak, because mm-hmm. of the cloud layer. Mars, we've done to death in a sense. We've got yeah. so much information, but Pluto does seem like you know Mars has always been the favourite. I yep. think to a lot of people, but Pluto surely is going to take that uh, that ticket now in terms of just the complexity of stuff that's coming out. Yeah, but the and it will be for for years to come now. Um, well, certainly for the next sixteen months, while we wait for the data to s- trickle its way via mm. modem style speeds from New Horizons, <laughs> um, that will be uh, of interest. So that guarantees it will be years of interest. Yep. But then I, I wonder what's going to happen because we won't visit Pluto again. For, for at least mm. a decade, and it will be more because we haven't got anything to launch, but it would take 10 years to get there. So that implies that it's going to, a couple of cycles of, of uh, PhDs will come through, work on this older data, and then, I don't know, things fall out of flavor. So right now, super exciting. 20 years from now, I don't know, maybe. Mm. We'll see. But I think uh, you're right, Venus is going to be the one that... Yeah. Because we have to understand, in, in terms of trying to understand about habitability of other worlds, and Kepler-452b is, is the big exciting one right now, but it's Venus is in the habitable zone, this Goldilocks zone, not too mm. hot, not too cold, and yet it's a hellish world. Runaway greenhouse effect has guaranteed a, a sort of almost impossible for life, and yet it's so similar to Earth in every other way. Yeah, size, the whole lot of thing. Mean, so, yeah. so how can we have two such different paths? And until we can understand Venus, I think a lot of the excitement in exoplanet research um, will will be just that. It, it will be exciting, but we can't be definitive until we can better understand our own solar system. Mm. If you were to classify him, Dr. Diani, would you be more excited about Venus or more excited about Pluto? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, look, I, I, I'll, I'll give you this. I, I am somewhat excited about... Well, not excited. I, I am interested in, uh, in Pluto, but I, I guess one of my questions would be, uh, you know, given that... So Pluto demoted to dwarf planet, and, mm-hmm. and from what I vaguely understand of the whole thing was that it it doesn't differentiate itself enough from a lot of the other objects orbiting that are a bit further out than Pluto. Mm. And so I guess my question would be, like, how does what we now know about Pluto um, inform us about all of these many, many other things? Are there are all of these other things equally as young and interesting uh, as 
Pluto, or, or or is Pluto still different from those? Yep. Okay, that's a great question. Well, Pluto uh, was demoted to dwarf planet, but that's no that was no comment on its scientific value. Uh, but it's the first of a new class of Plutoids. So this is the these icy worlds at the very edge of the solar system in what we call the Kuiper Belt, and there are countless millions of smaller objects, rock and ice, left over from the uh, the messy business of planet formation. Basically, those we have next to no idea about and indeed new horizons next target will be one of those fragments they could be completely different to pluto we we really just don't know at this stage what they are or what they'll be like but um it's worth remembering that occasionally they come close to us right like halley's comet we think is actually one of these objects certainly some of the meteorites that have uh, impacted caused extinction events could actually have been kuiper belt objects so they do come close to earth so it's it's in our advantage to know a little bit more about them mm-hmm. but uh in terms of pluto pluto's connection with those i have a feeling that pluto will be as different to those smaller objects as as we are to pluto it's mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. its size does guarantee that in more interesting things are going to happen i think those fragments will be um useful to as a as a really pristine frozen sample of the early solar system they really are deep freeze for 4.6 billion years we can understand exactly what chemical composition uh was around when the solar system was forming by those samples because pluto clearly the fact it's orange and it has all this organic gunk these tholines it has been interacting and been very active uh, in the last hundreds of millions of years if not longer these little things they have to be they have to be geologically dead there can't be anything going on there i'm certain of this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah a whole lot of people said that about pluto before it was demoted um actually just let's just finish on there with regards to the the motion and i do mm-hmm. call it you know it was a change but my understanding is there are three criteria that um were put forward and i think this was called resolution 5a or b or something rather mm-hmm. by the in- international astronomical union yep one, one was that the object had to have cleared its orbit yep Two was that it had to have hydrostatic equilibrium, so it formed a ball. Yeah, yeah. And three was, and I'm trying to remember, I mentioned it the guys earlier, uh, there was a third item. Um, I can't remember it offhand. Did you, yeah, anyway. Gosh, I can't remember. No, that's yeah, terrible. Okay, that's no, that's terrible. Now, uh, now on those matters, though, uh, oh, it rotates around the sun. Orbits the sun. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, because yeah. otherwise, so some moons. moons so could, that was yeah, to catch up yeah. moons that are so large that they could be planets, planets, planets except like, they're rotating yeah, around yeah, Jupiter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, in terms of clear that's orbit and things like that, mm. I mean, does Earth meet these conditions? I mean, it, that's the question, right? Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, Earth certainly has. Although it's worth bearing in mind there are uh, smaller bits of of rubble that mm. um, precede us in our orbit and lag behind, and the Trojan. Yeah. Um, uh, points so those are those are uh but we don't sort of kind those we sort of i guess if you have um a world that goes around in its orbit is there a pretty good chance and by that i mean effectively 100 percent chance that it won't actually just run into something that's that's there right uh clearing out its orbit pluto definitely hasn't done that simply because you have uh five moons around it that certainly in the case of sharon is almost as large so it, it's it's clearly not gravitationally dominating. Okay. I mean, it's it, it's actually orbiting about a point that's outside of its own yeah, yeah. surface. Yeah. I mean, yeah. whereas us and our moon, we orbit above a point that's beneath the Earth's yes. surface, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's causing us to yeah. wobble, but we are yeah. by far and away the dominant object. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Take that moon. Uh, 
All right, we're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about that uh, the new planet around another system that uh, there's been a lot of hype about, and I think uh, it's a fair bit more hype than anything else. But we'll talk about that with Alan in just a moment after this track. Three, triple, You're listening to Triple R, folks. Uh, if you wonder what that great track we just played, it was uh, by Brother B called Gone and Gone. And uh, thanks, Brother B, for tweeting us. We love you too. <laughs> uh, before that uh, was DuckTales with a Head Banging in the Mirror. Somehow familiar. And the first one we played was by Olympia called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Oh, so much meaning in today's tracks. Now, Alan, uh, during the week, people have probably seen in the news, there's been a lot of hype, and I suspect there's a bit more hype than science, um, about this uh, new discovery by the Kepler probe and mm-hmm. NASA confirming this planet that seems to be in a similar orbital state to Earth, mm-hmm. around a, a star that's similar to our sun. It's a bit bigger than us, but uh, has some similarities. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, tell us a bit about this discovery. Yeah, so this is called uh, Kepler 452b, which is be, just showing astronomers are terrible at <laughs> naming things. <laughs> uh, this is uh, a world 1,400 light years away, and all we've seen of it is it uh, occludes. It gets in the way of the star, so you, the star sort of gets a little bit fainter and as the shadow, basically, of this little planet passes in front. But from that, you can tell its uh, orbit, its approximate size. Mm. And really what's exciting about this is, in, as you said in your intro, this is a very similar star to our sun, a G2, same color, same, a little bit brighter. What's a G2? Uh, ju- oh, just the, the type of star. Our star is a G2. Um, there's size, a whole naming convention, temperature, size, temperature, age. all those good things. Right, yep. okay. Yep. Um, Sorry, I was just dropping into <laughs> nomenclature there, which I try not to do. Um, so the same colour, you've got um, sort of similar brightness, it's a little bit brighter. But the planet's, even the planet's year is actually really similar to Earth's. But the catch is that it's bigger. Mm. And it's, uh, so its gravity is probably about twice that of Earth, so you wouldn't be particularly comfortable. But it's not going to stop any potential life. The kicker is we don't know what its atmosphere is doing. Mm. And... Uh, it's very exciting discovery because it implies that rocky worlds like the Earth uh, might indeed be common. I mean, we actually know that, I think, now already, that it's probably one in five sun-like stars. But to see it is another thing. So that's why I was getting excited. But I did want to sort of bring it back to the idea of the atmosphere is everything. So on Earth, nice atmosphere, we get decent temperatures, Venus, hellish. Yeah. yeah. So And this, this world could quite easily be more Venus- than Earth, mm. uh, especially because of its additional gravity, will ho- likely hold on to more atmosphere. The, the thing I find a little bit uh, concerning and disturbing is, say there was intelligent life on this planet, which is really, <laughs> let's just Long say, try, yeah, there, but yeah, there sure. isn't, and they were looking at us, they'd be seeing us in the year 615. We're not that great back then, folks. Um, we weren't doing much. There was, I mean, we weren't, so best case, uh, you know, burning some forests and stuff like that. I mean, we're not really yeah. doing anything that would excite a civilization to say, hey, mm. those guys are, are doing good stuff. Well, the only way, they would absolutely be confident there was, depending on how big their telescopes were, but they would be confident that there would be life here, for mm. sure. Uh, but the only sign of intelligent life would be, there's no radio, no TV, yeah, no SETI signals, but there would be mass deforestation. Yeah. So the chlorophyll 
which you can detect the actual um, spectra of in the light, the colour of, of the Earth, rapid change, and they would know that something is up. Yeah. Yeah, we just have a minute, so we're going to be quick. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, right. I was just wondering why we don't know about the atmosphere. If you've got a sun and you've mm-hmm. got it, you know, shining light past yep. the object, the yep. planet, why can we not get the spectra off that and say, yep, there's whatever... We, can, we absolutely can. It just takes follow-up observations. And because this right. thing is so far away, it's actually going to be a challenge. We need the next-generation 30-metre-class optical telescopes like Australia's leading with the giant Magellan Telescope. Mm. This is going to then catch the atmospheres of these worlds. Right. Mm. Then we'll get real excited. <laughs> it's, uh, look, it, it is fun. I mean, the, the thing, of course, that's amazing, if you, you travel back 20 years, people um, weren't even sure that there were planets around yeah. other stars i mean this was a question back then and it now was. we literally have thousands confirmed yeah. which is uh yeah every star in the night sky on average has a planet around it yeah, that's, that's what com- we've learned in a the completely years. different statement to where we were 20 years ago are you excited about that dr diani you have no idea how much <laughs> <laughs> uh disturbing i have a guess but <laughs> look uh, we're gonna have to finish there uh dr alan duffy thanks so much for coming in again and chatting to us thanks and um, we will no doubt have you in again um have fun out there at swinburne university i know you guys do some fantastic outreach programs and it's good to see so many people getting interested in astronomy yeah well done uh well uh dr ray thanks so much it was fun. Yep, indeed. Dr. Diani, you excited? You're leaving excited? <laughs> How could I say anything? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> we'll see you again soon. We're only a few weeks away from Radiothon, folks, so we're all getting excited here in the studio. Um, but until then, we're going to leave you for, to the fabulous team from Edit, who uh, Matt Stedman over there is giving me the thumbs up through the glass. He doesn't know that I can't see him because of the reflection. All I see is his hands flailing about. But he's wearing, a, I think, a dark T-shirt, so I can't actually see his body, just these weird hands up in the air. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for joining us once again. We will be back again next week with some amazing people coming into the studio until then remember science is everywhere and have a great sunday this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au